I have a few updates before we begin. Thanks to Audible, we can give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of audiobooks, but they also have choices from podcasts to meditation sessions. I listen to Audible frequently and use it for some of the reference materials we use on the show. I love audiobooks. For one, I'm a crayon eater, so having someone read the book to me is a lot easier. But it also allows me to rewind and re-listen to segments, and I can listen while I'm doing things around the house. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I personally read or listened to and enjoyed. I'll include my suggestion at the end of the podcast, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And whether you decide to continue your membership with Audible, this book is yours to keep forever. It's a great offer and a great way to support the show. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. History of the Marine Corps is also on Patreon. I have many plans for this podcast for 2021, including making YouTube videos about Marine Corps battles, conducting more interviews with Marines, and even visiting some of these battle sites we discussed on the podcast and creating virtual tours of the battlefield. Patreon is one of the ways we will make that happen. Patreon is a way for supporters of the podcast to directly support the show. And depending on what tier you join, you get perks and access no one else gets. Visit patreon.com slash marine history to look at our Patreon page. Thanks for your time and now on to the show. Welcome to episode 58 of History of the Marine Corps. The United States Invades Mexico. Last week's episode introduced the Mexican-American War. The first part of the podcast discussed Texas and Mexico's history. We covered the United States' manifest destiny and briefly reviewed Mexico's leadership. Toward the end of the show, we looked at U.S. citizens' view on the Mexican-American War and introduced Archibald Gillespie. We ended the show with Marines landing on Mexican soil. The Mexican-American War covered a lot of territory, but you could break the Marine Corps' involvement into two areas, the east coast of Mexico and the west coast of North America. This episode gets into conflicts in eastern Mexico. We'll follow the Marines, Army, and the Navy as they make their way to critical Mexican ports. The episode ends with the siege of Veracruz and the Marines preparing for Chapultepec. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. The Marines advancing across the Rio Grande made them the first U.S. forces to set foot on Mexican soil. We touched on the Marine Corps' size during our last episode, but to re-emphasize the strength of the Corps during the Mexican-American War, the total number of Marines was 1,263, with 63 of those being officers. 
Before the United States declared war on Mexico, the U.S. Navy had been increasing its fleet size. The practice at the time was not to have more than 50% of Marines serving at sea. But more ships meant more Marines were needed, and when the war broke out in 1846, 75% of Marines were serving on naval vessels. This number did not include Marines serving onshore protecting Navy yards. Archibald Henderson attempted multiple times to increase the Marine Corps' strength. But the Secretary of the Navy, George Bancroft, repeatedly turned down his request. Bancroft even claimed that the Marine Corps had more officers than needed. The entire theater of this war was large. It involved thousands of miles from Mexico, across what is now New Mexico, and into California. But the involvement of the Marines and the Navy included the eastern coast of Mexico and the west coast of North America. The two operation areas were fought independently of each other, which meant the already stretched-thin Marines would have to further divide their forces to fight two fronts. When the Mexican army crossed the river and attacked the U.S. Army, the United States immediately dispatched naval vessels to the area to blockade vital ports to Mexico. As a detachment of 200 sailors and marines entered Matamoros, the Mexican army retreated to San Luis Potosi, about 400 miles southeast. This inland retreat eliminated the need for the U.S. Navy. Marines and sailors left the area on May 20th to gather supplies for wide-ranging expeditions along the Mexican beach. One of the targets would be Alvarado. Alvarado sits on the east coast of Mexico, just north of Veracruz. This port was significant and provided most of the war supplies to the Mexican army. The U.S. Navy attempted blockades, but shallow waters along the port made it nearly impossible for large naval vessels to operate. In the late 1830s, the Navy organized a small group of naval vessels with the sole purpose of guarding U.S. coastlines. This group of ships was named the Home Squadron, and their mission was like the U.S. Coast Guard today. They were responsible for protecting coastal commerce, helping any ships in trouble, and surveying the coastline. Commodore David Connor commanded the Home Squadron, and they were tasked with securing Mexican coastlines and providing blockades on important ports. Connor decided to attack and capture the ports, despite shallow water prohibiting the home squadron from effectively blockading naval traffic into Alvarado. Alvarado had a strong defense, and Connor did not have the ships needed to cross the shallow waters. But despite these shortcomings, he launched an attack on August 7, 1846. For six hours, the Mississippi and the Princeton fired at the port's defenses, while smaller gunboats filled with marines and sailors tried to cross the shallow water. The attack started as planned, but when the gunboats neared the river, they found that the current was too strong and little progress was made advancing on the port's defenses. They continued to head towards shore until nightfall, but due to the strong current and constant musket fire from Mexican troops, U.S. forces withdrew back to the larger ships. British vessels in the area witnessed the retreat, which added to the humiliation. 
It also impacted the Polk's administration attempt at propagandizing the war. This war was not popular, and a large portion of the country, specifically the Whigs, saw Polk's decision to declare war on Mexico as an excuse to expand U.S. territory. Polk's administration needed this victory to popularize the war. The port was vital to this war's victory, and Connor started preparing for another attack as soon as he had the appropriate men and ships to capture the port. The U.S. Navy lacked small steamer vessels that were essential for warfare against fortifications near the mouths of rivers. Two months later, the Vixen and the McLean joined Connor's squadron, and on October 15th, he launched another attack on Alvarado. Connor assembled a storming party of Marines and seamen and assigned them to the Mississippi. The purpose of this party was to support the smaller steamers. Connor was on board the Vixen when it advanced towards Alvarado. In tow were two schooner gunboats. The McLean followed closely, towing three gunboats. U.S. forces were up against a strong defense. At the mouth of the river stood a large fort guarding the entrance. Once past the initial defense, four smaller forts were up the river providing additional support for Mexican forces. In addition to fortifications, the Mexican Navy deployed two brigs, a schooner, and two gunboats to protect against the advancing Americans. The Mississippi began the attack and focused on the large fort at the mouth of the river. While the fort was dealing with the Mississippi's bombardment, the Vixen led the amphibious force towards the shore. As they approached, the Vixen and gunboats opened fire on the main fort as well. The McLean was following closely, but couldn't make it past the shallow water. The gunboats towed by the McLean attempted to proceed without her support, but the river's current was too strong and they failed to reach their target. The damage done to the defending fort was minimal, and Connor decided to call off the attack. The U.S. fleet retreated again, and Connor moved the squadron about 25 miles north. Mexico's second victory at Alvarado significantly improved the morale of the army. Although an embarrassing loss by the United States, there was an important lesson learned from these two attacks. Connor's attack on Alvarado did not include a strong military force to take the fort by land. If Connor would have dispatched a landing party west of the town, advanced towards Alvarado on land, while naval ships provided ranged attack from the sea, the results might have had different results. This approach would be applied later in the war, but Connor preferred to attack from the sea, not land, and he would not use this strategy against Alvarado. About 300 miles east of Alvarado, Commodore M.C. Perry commanded a detachment of the squadron and had the mission of capturing the town of Frontera, near the opening of the Tabasco River. Once the United States captured the town, Perry would travel up the river and take the capital, San Juan Batista. Tabasco's capital city was an important trading post for Mexico and was guarded by a large Mexican military force. Again, 200 marines and sailors were gathered on the Mississippi, but this time, Perry prepared a landing party. On October 23rd, Perry launched his plan. 
The squadron got into position, and the day started with Perry reaching out to the town and demanding their surrender. This demand worked, and the town surrendered without resistance. As Perry moved into Frontera, he captured multiple smaller ships, including a steamer that he would use to move troops up the river. Although this victory was accomplished without a struggle, American forces understood that the main Mexican military force was waiting for them at San Juan Bautista. With Frontera falling into American control, Perry anticipated that the military force would expand its defenses around the capital city. In response, he quickly organized his attacking party, prepared the steamers for transport, and headed the 70 miles upriver towards San Juan Bautista. On the first day, U.S. forces managed to travel up the river with little resistance. They continued towards their destination on day two, and when they were within a few miles of their target, they were confronted by a small Mexican army. However, this wasn't a surprise to Perry, and he dispatched a landing party about a mile before they encountered Mexican forces on the river. The gunboats provided support for the Marines and sailors who attacked via land, and the joint attack was too much for the Mexican force, and they quickly retreated. The landing party spiked the fort's cannons, boarded the supporting U.S. ship, and continued their journey toward San Juan Bautista. Three hours later, the Americans reached their destination. Perry positioned his ships for an attack within close range of their target. Like Frontera, he sent a message to the town and demanded their surrender, but this time it wouldn't be that easy. The Mexican commander refused Perry's demand and replied to, quote, open fire as soon as he pleased, unquote. True to his word, Perry opened fire on the city with three volleys from the Vixen. The shots were accurate and resulted in the town's flag being shot down. Perry sent a second message to the town, demanding their surrender, and again, the Mexican commander refused. This time, Perry sent a landing party to respond. The Marines and sailors captured the city with little resistance, with supporting fire from the squadron. Mexican forces dispersed throughout the area, but they did not retreat. Perry anticipated the return of the Mexican army at night and he did not want his men in the open when they returned. He recalled the sailors and marines to the ship until daylight. Just as Perry expected, Mexican forces returned to the town, and the following morning continued to fire at the U.S. ships. However, Perry prepared for this attack, and had his ships positioned with their guns facing the city. He returned fire with a massive naval bombardment, that overwhelmed Mexican forces. Shortly after the attack, the Mexican commander ordered a white flag raised over the city, signaling their surrender. Perry gathered supplies from the town and confiscated any boats he could use for further attacks. American forces shortly left and headed towards Frontera, arriving the night of October 26th. After successfully taking Frontera and San Juan Bautista, the Marines and sailors were sent back to the Mississippi. The squadron returned to Anton Lazardo, and a steamer and schooner were left to maintain the blockade on the port. 
As soon as Perry returned from the Tabasco expedition, he was ordered to Tampico. The Department of the Navy established that Tampico would be a valuable base for the U.S. Army, which was currently making its way through Mexico from Texas. Connor was preparing for Alvarado's third invasion, but leadership prioritized Tampico and his redemption would have to wait. Intelligence suggested that Tampico would surrender relatively easily if there was a large naval presence, but learning from past mistakes, Connor launched a landing force just in case the naval vessels didn't cause the panic as predicted. U.S. forces arrived at Tampico on November 14th, and they quickly prepared for the attack. 300 Marines and sailors boarded steamers and prepared for an amphibious landing. The squadron Marine officer, Captain Alvin Edson, commanded the battalion of Marines. At 1100, the U.S. ship Raritan fired a single shot, signifying the start of the attack. When the Marines and sailors approached the river's mouth, they discovered that the fort was abandoned. As they traveled up the river, they were met by a boat carrying a flag of truce. In the boat were civilians, and they claimed that Mexican forces had fled the city and wanted to surrender to the United States. Connor accepted the town surrender, confiscated five vessels abandoned by the Mexican military, took control of the city, and stationed Marines to defend against any Mexican military forces that would return. Captain Edson was placed in charge of that detachment as well, and the remaining U.S. forces returned to their ships. Before the United States left Tampico, they discovered a large supply of ammunition and gunpowder abandoned by the Mexican army. Edson took a small detachment of 20 Marines and 12 sailors to take possession of the abandoned supplies. They destroyed most of it and took what they could back to Tampico. The United States Army, under the command of Colonel William Gates, arrived at Tampico with 500 men. On November 23rd, under a formal ceremony, Edson and his Marines transferred command over to Gates and the Army. The Marines would stay at Tampico until December, helping the Army as needed. As 1846 came to an end, President Polk and the War Department revisited their strategy on Mexico. They decided on a more aggressive approach in the hopes that it would force Mexico into negotiating a peace treaty. Their plan included attacking Veracruz, one of Mexico's main ports. If Mexico did not agree to peace after they captured the city, U.S. forces would advance towards Chapultepec before taking Mexico's capital. The United States went to great lengths preparing for the attack on Veracruz. Most of Taylor's army of occupation was transferred to Major General Winfield Scott, who was selected to command the attack. The Navy gathered a large fleet of transportation vessels for the amphibious landing. Siege guns were provided to help with the assault, and extensive planning went into the essential supplies needed for the landing party. The entire expedition first made its way to Lobos Island for training, supplies, and joint planning. While U.S. forces were preparing an attack, Mexican President Santa Ana started gathering a force at San Luis Potosi to defend against the United States. 
he raised an army at least three times the size of Taylor's remaining forces. He planned to attack Taylor before Scott and his reinforcements arrived. However, this attack did not go as planned, and the U.S. Army managed to defend against Santa Ana, which resulted in Mexico's retreat. A lot of time and energy went into planning the joint Army-Navy operation on Veracruz. Landing troops were equipped with only necessary, lightweight equipment. The 1st Division, which consisted of a battalion of about 200 to 300 Marines and around 4,200 soldiers, and under the command of Brigadier General Worth, landed two to three miles southeast of the city on March 9, 1847. The Marines were attached to the 3rd Artillery. Five gunboats, and two small steamers formed a line to cover the advance. After every troop had landed, Scott formed a front that extended around the city, effectively cutting off communication from Veracruz. Once he had established the front, the siege of the city began. Veracruz had 6,000 soldiers defending against the raid. When the attack commenced, Mexican artillery provided a strong defense against the attacking U.S. forces. In response to Mexican artillery, Scott and Connor launched a joint Army-Navy bombardment on the city's defenses, which successfully breached the city's walls. The Marine Battalion advanced with the U.S. Army as the attack continued. In addition to destroying Mexican defenses, this joint attack also obliterated the morale of local citizens. Nervous about the incoming raid, Veracruz's people approached the United States on March 29th and the U.S. flag would fly over the town's fortress. After the city surrendered, Marines headed back to their ship. This battle lasted 20 days and the Marines received heavy bombardment from Mexican artillery. However, only one Marine died during this battle. In a letter to the headquarters of the Army, General Scott sent a message that stated, quote, To Commodore Connor, the officers and sailors of the squadron, the Army is indebted for great and unceasing assistance, promptly and cheerfully rendered. Their cooperation is the constant theme of our gratitude and admiration. A handsome detachment of Marines, under Captain Edson of the Corps, landed with the first line, and is doing duty with the army. Unquote. This win is just what the Polk administration was looking for to popularize the war. And U.S. citizens celebrated the victory at Veracruz. However, despite the decisive victory, Santa Ana did not surrender to the United States. Polk and the War Department would continue to move forward with their plan. Connor saw this as an opportunity to attack Alvarado for the third time, and he started preparing his squadron for the final raid. The army started to prepare for a march towards Mexico City. As for the Marines, they would play a role in both attacks. Marines were attached to the army and the navy, and while the navy prepared for the third attack on Alvarado, the Marines attached to the army started to prepare for their march to Chapultepec. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll follow the Marines as they travel to the halls of Montezuma.
Welcome to this week's book recommendation. This week's suggestion is The Training Ground, Grant, Lee, Sherman, and Davis in the Mexican War by Martin Duggard. For those looking to expand their knowledge of the Mexican-American War from an Army perspective, this book provides a lot of insightful information on great Army leaders of the war. Just as the title indicates, the book focuses on leaders like Grant, Lee, and Stonewall Jackson. Although the book doesn't focus on the Marine Corps, Marines are mentioned in the book, including a story about Marines climbing the roof of a house behind the Mexican army and decimating the Mexican infantry. This book is an excellent read if you want to learn more about the army's involvement during the war and set up the background of leadership who will be fighting during the American Civil War. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. But don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This free audiobook applies to any of the thousands of Audible choices. History of the Marine Corps is now on Patreon. Visit the link in the description to visit our page. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.